This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. Yesterday, uh, City Council's uh, planning committee dealt with a number of different issues. One of them is, is, is an issue that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Frankly, I've been talking about this for years, but uh, City Council got a, a report from staff about this, and it's it's about widening Highway 403, and not the whole highway, but we're talking about the stretch from the, the Highway 6 extension, you know, which goes up to the airport, all the way down to Main Street. In other words, down the hill. Now, as you know, for those of you who drive that highway, uh, going up the hill, there are three lanes of traffic. I assume that's because, I'm not a traffic engineer, but I assume that's because they had that far right lane is supposed to be for slow-moving trucks, etc., so the other traffic can move. And by the way, it doesn't work very well, but that's the way it is. Downbound, though, there are only two lanes. And for those of you that make that drive every morning and get stuck in traffic and stuck in log, and it, it log jams, all sorts of stuff, city council feels your pain. But there's more to it than inconvenience. It's now starting to cost money. Businesses are complaining that uh, they can't get their product to market. They're stuck in traffic. And when businesses start seeing their bottom line impacted, well, that's when they start looking for better places to go and locate their businesses. And that's not good if that starts happening here. Let me bring Lloyd Ferguson into the conversation. He is the counselor for Ward 12 uh, out in Ancaster, uh, right at the top of the hill, as a matter of fact. And he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Lloyd. How are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, Bill. Listen, this has got to be music to the ears of an awful lot of commuters, but let's talk about the business aspect of this for just a minute and the impact that uh, that, uh, that near gridlock conditions are having on that stretch of the road. Yeah, first of all, I, uh, I travel that road every day. I mm-hmm. live in western Ancaster, and, and I get on at Highway 52. And this morning I got on a rotary meeting. I, got, I entered the highway uh, at Wilson Street at, at 403, and it was backed up to Wilson at that time. Uh, so every day when I go down that is backed up generally to Fiddler's Green Road, sometimes to Wilson, and on bad days even back as Highway 52. And I've driven that highway every day for 40 years. I used to commute to Oakville my professional life for 32 mm-hmm. years, and it used to be you went right straight through. You didn't hit congestion until the Queenie um, 403 met. Now you hit huge congestion, and it's getting. You can see the difference every year, getting worse and worse and worse. And and part of the problem is, uh, you know, we got the new Highway 6 connected, which uh, encourages anyone who lives south of the city to get on the highway from the Highway 6. That's the most convenient way. Plus, along Garner Road itself, you know, the John Frederick area just in the last two years has added another thousand homes in that area. So that's at least a thousand new cars getting on the highway every day. Well, I saw the stakes going up for another one right beside that uh, that uh, interchange as well. So yeah, they're building what, what, even more up there, aren't they? They are. They're, well, it's the last phase now that's coming in. Okay. That, that um, John Frederick area. They're all. It's a little sandy development. And uh, now there's others being proposed for South Coast Road. Uh, now, fortunately. Uh, in June, I was successful in working with the province to get everything out south of Garner Road between um, uh, Fiddlers and Shaver in the Greenbelt. So uh, we won't see any development in that area in the foreseeable future because these very reasons we're running out of infrastructure capacity, whether it's a 403 or Wilson Street or Garner or even our sanitary sewage capacity. So people can get comfortable in that book road area that you in the Greenbelt would have added another 18,000 homes. And there was a big push from landowners and developers to, in fact, allow that development to proceed, but we shut it down. But uh, five years ago, there was a major study done. I couldn't get any work done on major arterial roads like Wilson Street until they completed the five-year, uh, or the Ancaster Transportation Master Plan. So that was completed five years ago, and uh, since that's been done, we were able to proceed with major infrastructure projects like Wilson Street. But... Um, I amended it once I hit the council floor that we worked with the MTO to widen Highway 403 from the link down to uh, Main Street to relieve congestion. I asked, I didn't ask for a lot, I asked for one link down because uh, it's it's not going to be an easy project to do coming down this garment. And in my previous life, I used to build all kinds of widenings where you widen into the median, you put in storm sewers, a tall wall, a barrier wall and added an additional lane so you wouldn't have to go into the escarpment to do this work. I reiterated that motion through council back to the transportation ministry a year ago. And in fact, in March of this year, we did get a reply from the Minister of Transportation. And if you permit, permit to, I'm just going to read a couple paragraphs from it. 
It says, I'm pleased to advise that Phase 1 of the Niagara GTA Corridor Planning Environmental Assessment uh, Study is now complete. Recommendations include highway improvements and widening on Highway 403 in Hamilton with two additional lanes from King Street slash Main Street to Jerseyville to alleviate traffic congestion. And then another letter we received, it goes on to say again that the Phase 1, the Greater Toronto study, which, by the way, Bill, is that Mid-Niagara bypass where they've concluded that it wasn't necessary, and now they turned the way to look at existing highways. So it says, once again, phase one of the uh, study is complete. Recommendations include the widening. Uh, now, it goes on to say that these recommendations are subject to environmental assessments and approvals before implementation. And here's the critical words. Timing to initiate this next phase will depend on further review and priority of expansion needs across the province. And now we'll go back to where your opening question Let was. Me, uh, yeah, listen, I'm going to put that in context for you, okay? Because people that think, well, hey, at least they, they haven't said no, and that's great news. How many years have you been working with the province now to try to get that uh, that ramp done out of the 403? Uh, seven years. Yeah, okay. So, you I mean, know, it's, it's very, very difficult because particularly they say we don't solve local local problems is the answer from the staff. And I finally had to get to the minister to allow it to proceed. And if you like, I'll come back to that. Yeah, please but do, I, because I, I, I think that's the thought around 403. That that, that's a, a that clear answer. indicator on in how difficult it can be to try to get these guys on side. Yeah, but uh, yesterday we had the report from... Um, uh, on the employment areas inventory and shovel-ready employment lands. And one of the things that was identified by staff and, and presented by Guy Paparella, and I heard him on the news uh, talking about it last night, is the expansion of Highway 403 because we are the largest cargo airport in the in Canada. And this cargo leaves early in the morning because the flights come in overnight because we don't have curfews. They come right down Highway 6 and hit this wall of traffic. So he's now of the view that this is going to start affecting our ability to be competitive in the marketplace due to congestion on this highway. And one of our competitive advantages for decades has been no congestion in Hamilton, unlike what Toronto's experiencing. But we now have it here. And so uh, there was a recommended motion that we uh, uh, ask again about the 403. So I amended that yesterday on the fly in reflection of these letters we recently see, received from the Minister of Transportation. And and so one of the recommendations approved at General Issues Committee yesterday and will move forward to be ratified by uh, Council next Wednesday is reaffirm our position to expand Highway 403 from two to three lanes between the Lincoln Alexander and Main Street, both upbound and downbound, and advance as quickly as possible the environmental assessment review. And, and because I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to understand it's going to be very controversial to widen into the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, there's going to be a lot of agencies that are going to push back on that, like the Niagara Escarpment Commission, and I'm not sure where the MTO fits in in exemptions to that. But you can widen to one, one lane by widening into the median. But the second lane, to get one lane up, one lane down, will either have to blast into the escarpment further or do like we did in the Claremont Access and cantilever over the edge of the escarpment uh, to add that second lane. So this environmental assessment will be a very slow process, I suspect. Let me ask you about that, okay? Because you, you, were, you were in the road-building business for a long time, so you've got some expertise on this, okay? Didn't they, they went through, when they built that road in the first place, they went through environmental assessments and, and engineering studies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we're adding a lane, and I'm not suggesting it's a small task because you've just outlined uh, some of the work that needs to be done, and it's going to be rather expensive. I get that. But why do you have to go back to square one again and start all over? Well, that's a question you can get the minister on your show, because I'd love to hear his answer to that. And, and you know, unlike the, the municipalities, the provinces are exempt from a lot of things. Uh, for example, they can build highways through the green belt where nobody else can. And, and so, um, you know... It's it's not that expensive, quite frankly, to put that lane on in the media. You take the guardrail out, you put uh, a, a small storm sewer down the middle, put a what's called in the road building world the tall wall, which is that barrier wall uh, between the uh, the upbound and downbound lanes, and add a lane. And 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 uh, uh, now the second lane, the cantilever over the edge of the escarpment, uh, could be tricky and expensive, or blast into the. Um, 
into the escarpment to gain more space. And, and, and that's not as expensive. Uh, in fact, it's, it's, it's lower cost because there's good limestone in there, and you use that limestone that you're removing to make the aggregate, which brings down cost. But it's going to be tricky, I think, to, in, from my experience, once you start getting involved with the Niagara Escarpment Commission to get approval to do that. But they need to start this process now. This is going to be at least a year, if not two. It's going to be controversial. And in the kicker newsletter that was sent to council in reply to my motion on May 21st was that uh, timing to initiate this review is dependent on further review and prioritization. So our my step, our next step, and why I included in the motion is make this a priority. And uh, so we'll see how he replies to this motion. Well, and therein lies part of the problem. I, I can remember a conversation I had with Premier Wynn when last time she was in the studio here. It's got to be a couple of years ago now. Uh, and I asked her about the mid-pen, which at that time uh, was not a priority. But, I mean, the government's own document, the Places to Grow document, recommended a trade corridor between Hamilton Airport and, and the border. They're still dragging their heels on this. And, well, that's and, and, been canceled. Well, I know, but they yeah. realized the problem. It's their own their own planning document said we need it, and now they said, no, we're not going to do this. Uh, and what they don't seem to comprehend about what you're asking for here, this is not about local traffic congestion. This is about commerce. You know, we've got the airport. They built the extension. Well, it wasn't their government. It was the, uh, the previous government that built the extension up to the airport. Now, all of a sudden, we have gridlock. And you know as well as I do, Lloyd, that if this continues, some of those companies that are located up there, including those 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 companies that are doing all this packaging and sending stuff down there, they're going to say, you know what, Hamilton's not affordable anymore. We're going someplace else. And how well, many jobs are we going to lose then? Absolutely. It'll take away our competitive advantage. And, of course, the big pinch point is right at the link. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to say you've got four lanes coming into two. That's going to create congestion. And that coupled with that, the new Highway 6 South, which brings in a bunch of new traffic. But, you know, as, 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 as Councillor Whitehead pointed out yesterday, the link is plugged as far back as you can see. That's his award. He says, so people are pouring off at Garth. Now Garth is congested. Uh, the Queen Street Hill is congested, and the whole Aberdeen Bay area is congested as a result of people trying to avoid the 403 because they can't get on. And, and so it's a big multiplier effect, and, and, uh, and, and we need attention to the sink. We need those additional lanes. When you, when, when you run four into two, you're going to have to add at least one more in order to relieve that congestion. But the overarching problem here is not with you. It's with the provincial government. And, and I'll lay the cards on the table here. Somebody else may not want to talk about this, but I don't have a problem with it is this government is preoccupied with public transit. And I get that because I support public transit, but they do it to the exclusion of roads. They just think roads are a dirty word, and they don't seem to want to do much to improve that kind of transportation. But that is commerce, Lloyd, and they don't seem to understand that. Well, I can, I can in their defense, I don't want to sound like I'm defending the province, but in their defense, they did spend $15 million. In fact, the project's not finished to resurface Highway 403 through Ancaster. Uh, went down as far as Highway 52, right up to... Oh, uh, I know. Listen, I, look, when I leave at 4 o'clock in the morning, I see all the road closures. I know exactly what you're talking about. So they are investing in the maintenance of the highway. It's the, it's the expansion of it is where we're having trouble, and, and you're right. I think they, you know one of their philosophies is to get people out of their cars and on transit. But we have this little thing called the escarpment in the way, and it's even difficult to, you know, to, to run a train or to run a bus up and down the escarpment. And and most people from Ancaster, some go on to Toronto or Oakville or Burlington, but most do get off of Main Street because they're going to work. And so it's not a long distance, you know, from the link down to Fort Road, down to Main Street or from King Street back up to the link. To be able to get this wide and relieve this congestion, give this our competitive advantage that we need. I mean, in, in, in our bid to Amazon, we're going to argue. We're, we have uncongested roads, and we sort of have to turn the other cheek on the 403. And, and because of what we get there. But uh, it's, it's a competitive advantage that we market every day to potential investors, and you're seeing it uh, starting to pay off. In, uh, we had a 200% increase in our industrial building permits uh, so far in 2017 over 2016. So we've got to get ahead of it and get this, these, these pinch areas, these problem areas fixed so we can continue to market our city and create jobs for our community. I mean, I've heard businesses tell me, in some instances uh, that, that are using Hamilton Airport, they say, I, we got to get our trucks off there by 7 o'clock in the morning because they're just going to sit in traffic. And, and, and that's not competitive. That's, that's not what good for business. Well, i got bad news for you. they got to get it off before 7 because she's plugged up before then. Yeah. I, go, I go through it every day at different times. 
Well, listen, good luck with this. I mean, you you guys have got the right intention. You've got council support on this, uh, staff support. We talked to Guy Paparillo a week or two ago about this when they was crafting this report. All we need now is we need some supportive action from the provincial government about this uh, because this is our economic future. And they've already, in, in their reports that they've done on this, they've already underscored that this is part of our economic future. And now you've got to give us the infrastructure to support that. And just for your listeners, the resolution yesterday carried unanimously. So council is 100% behind this thing. Well, stay in touch with us. Let us know what happens. I appreciate the time today, Lloyd. Thanks for allowing me on. That's uh, Lloyd Ferguson, Ancaster Councilor, uh, looking for the expansion of 403. Just the stretch. We're talking just going down the hill. Put another lane in there. And it's not just so you can get to work faster. That That's a nice advantage. But this is for commerce. This is for the airport. This is for all those businesses, like Purelater. Purelater made Hamilton Airport their hub. It could have been Toronto. A lot of business people thought it should have been Toronto, but they said no, they picked Hamilton because it was competitive. It, the, the rates were lower. They can get there quickly. They can get their stuff out of there. If all of a sudden that doesn't happen anymore, you know what's going to happen. And that's a scenario we don't want to think about, but that's a reality or a possibility if we don't get moving on this. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, we uh, had a couple of discussions about the government's pilot project right now uh, in Hamilton and Brantford uh, about uh, this basic income project that the government is, is going to try to get up and running. Uh, it's not going as smoothly as they had thought it was, or maybe as they had hoped it would anyway. Tom Cooper's with us, the director of the Hamilton uh, Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, who's uh, been intimately involved in this, I guess is one way to describe it. How are you doing this morning? Good, Bill. How are you doing? Good. You, you and I talked about this uh, days after uh, the government announced their intention to do this. And uh, at the time, you raised some some concerns. At the, at the, uh, maybe that's the best way to characterize them then, mm-hmm. because we didn't quite know what their plan was and how they were going to try to implement the plan. Uh, they've tried to roll this out right now, and I'm getting the sense from some of your comments uh, over the last couple of days that uh, they haven't listened to an awful lot of the people that have said, well, have you looked at this? Have you addressed this? Uh, give me give me your read on what's gone on so far. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be that harsh. I, I think they are listening uh, to a certain extent. And, and, you know, I don't want to put the government down uh, for trying something new. And this is a social policy experiment, and these types of experiments are rarely neat and tidy. And the last thing I would want to do is to scare governments or uh, uh, people who are interested in in trying new things away from, you know, these types of of social policy experiments. I think they're really good to try. We just have to, you know, at the very beginning, ensure that when we're going into it, uh, we keep in mind that people... Uh, This is people's lives. This is people's livelihoods, incomes, um, their well-being uh, that we're dealing with. And we have to ensure that uh, that's all taken into consideration and that they are no, as Hippocrates said, do no harm. Uh, We have to ensure people are better off as a result of participating in this pilot than they would be otherwise. And so that's always been a bit of a foundation for us supporting the uh, pilot project. And it continues to be so. And uh, we think there is a lot of uh, benefit. There's a lot of value in in the idea of basic income. We know there's going to be challenges down the road uh, with uh, automation, um, with the loss of jobs potentially, and people will need uh, a a level of income to to meet their basic needs, uh, to really participate in the community and to keep the economy running. Um, So those are all issues in this. But sometimes when we get it down into the details, uh, it can get a bit messy. Let's let's talk about some of those details. And you know, anytime governments of any stripe uh, have tried to do anything to do with uh, trying to lift people up and, and that are in these circumstances, uh, and they'll say, well, okay, fine, uh, we're going to offer this, maybe it's an incentive program, whatever the case might be. Uh, the, the dirty word that was always surfacing was clawbacks. In other words, if people were on social assistance of some form, and there are many, by the way, I know some people just like to use that overall term, but there was always a clawback. Said, okay, we're going to give you an extra $200 a week or something. We're going to claw back any of the money that yep. you're getting, too. So it's a zero-sum game. The people were no further ahead. Yep. The government told me, and I'm talking to Ted McMeekin. I talked to the premier about this before they actually started the implementation. Don't worry, we're not going to do that now. But yep. apparently there are some, so we say, there are some, some cracks here that people are falling into. There's a few cracks. I don't think these are cracks that can't be filled. I, I really do think the government— Well, I'll give them, the, give them the, the, you know, the benefit of the doubt. 
couldn't see. Maybe they just didn't see this coming. Yeah. But yeah, and again, it, it, we're all doing this for the first time. Uh, last time it was tried in Canada was in the 1970s in Manitoba. Um, so basic income is, is a fairly new concept. So it, it comes down to a couple of issues. One is uh, they've had a fairly low response rate so far. Why? Well, I think people don't necessarily trust uh, the program. They don't trust the government. So uh, imagine you're on social assistance. Uh, you're a single person on Ontario Works today, Bill. You're getting $721 a month to live on. And uh, you're really moving from crisis to crisis in your life, not being able to necessarily afford the place you're living because, you know, quite frankly, the place you're living would have to be pretty bad uh, at at $721 a month uh, in total income. You well, have you to, less than that because yeah. you got to buy groceries and things. Yeah, so you you're probably talking 500 You got to buy uh, hygiene products. Uh, you have to pay for the utilities, hopefully, you know, a telephone so you can stay in touch and maybe call an employer so you can find a job. Um, so people are, are really in crisis when they're in that situation and it becomes really difficult uh, to trust something new. Uh, on the other hand, there's also the reality that um, for the last 20 years in this province, social assistance rates have been so low and the rules have been so difficult for people to follow um, that people have learned not to trust uh, these government programs. And, and, and so there's a level of mistrust as well. This is a bit of a sea change. And again, hats off to the provincial government for trying this. But um, it's, a, it's a new way of thinking around basic income. It's, pro, it's potentially doubling the income of somebody who's currently on Ontario Works. And that's, that could be a good news story, of course. Um, but how you move from, uh, you know, a relationship with the government uh, that's quite frankly, and it's not speaking to any one political party, but it's been the reality that um, government policy has kept people in dire poverty for the last 20 years in this province. So how do you move from trusting a system like that to trusting, oh, here's a new way we're going to run things? Well, it's not that easy for people. And I can see that. And and, and I think we had that in our initial discussion, that, that point about Who's going to p- take part in this? Who's going to? Because it's basically on a volunteer basis. I know you've you've recommended some people uh, that that should actually go into this, and probably some took you up on that. Some wouldn't right now, but there's a certain apprehension here. And and as you talked about, uh, when when you start looking at garnishments and some things like this, people are going to say, "See, aha! See, I yep. was right not to get involved in this." Yeah, and 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 when it comes to garnishment, that may very well be true. Uh, the problem with garnishment is there's lots of low income people who owe money to one creditor or another. Now it could be. Uh, could be a former landlord because it, again, if you're making seven hundred, if you're earning seven hundred and twenty-one dollars a month on on basic social assistance, there's no way you're going to be able to afford uh, a rental unit for very long if you run into any sort of crisis in your life. Um, so often people get economically evicted and have to move on to a new place. They can't afford to pay the landlord for the. Uh, rent they defaulted on. So they owe this money to the landlord. The landlord could potentially go and get a certificate of garnishment and try to uh, try to uh, pull money out of, uh, out of that person's income. Um, but there's legislation that says if you're on Ontario Works or you're on the Ontario Disability Support Program, garnishment isn't allowed. And there's legislation to back that up. But what about this legislation? So there isn't legislation well, there for you basic go. income. So, so in other words, if, if you're using your example, that person who's making 740 bucks, and you say, well, I can bump this up to 1400 and they're going to say, well, wait a second, that guy's going to come after me. I'm not going to, they're going to take the money. I'm yeah. going to be worse off. Yeah. So that's, that, that's a fear uh, and it's a legitimate fear. And I am very hopeful that the government recognizes that. They said they, said they have. Uh, Paul Miller, uh, MPP for Hamilton East Stony Creek, raised it in uh, the question period yesterday at Queen's Park. The premier acknowledged that it was a problem and they were going to look into it. So I am confident the provincial government will find a way to ensure that basic income is not garnished. But until that happens, I'm not comfortable referring anybody new to the uh, basic income pilot. And, um, you know, because there are these questions and people have to have uh, full consent going into it. So, you know, again, this is this is kind of messy social policy experimentation. 
Um, and it's not a reason not to do it, but it is a reason to, to try to fill in the gaps and, and make changes as you go along. And, you know, I have, I have confidence that the provincial government will do that. Well, and therein lies the problem is, is are they listening? They may be hearing, but are they listening? And, and I thought at the time that one of the reasons that Hamilton and, and by extension Brantford were actually included in this pilot project is because over the last 20 years, uh, as governments of, of both political stripes now uh, have tried to evolve with their social policies, some of it good, some of it bad, Hamilton has shown a tremendous propensity for being able to adopt to this and actually developing policy and legislation that other jurisdictions have actually followed and, and tried to mimic and say, hey, you you guys got it right. Yeah. And we've had some great folks, uh, Mike Schuster many, many years ago, Joanne Pryle now and, and yeah. others, that have have been able to work around that. But, but if the province isn't playing ball with you right now and saying, well, you know, we're not going to allow that, we're not going to listen to that, yeah. you're not going to get the participation. Yeah. And, and in their defense, the provincial government has done some really good things, particularly over the last six months. So uh, certainly their proposal on Bill 148 uh, to increase the minimum wage uh, to $15 by 2019 uh, is, is a very strong piece of legislation. I think there's, there could always be changes and improvements, but I think it's a very strong piece of legislation. Uh, the idea to provide uh, uh, free prescription drug uh, coverage for anybody under the age of 25 is a good start, needs to be expanded for all low-income people. Um, I, I, I think I think we're looking at an era of more government activism, but again, you're right. They have to they have to listen to what's happening on the ground. And, and here in Hamilton, we have done some extraordinary things as well. Just last week at council, uh, council unanimously supported the mayor and uh, Chad Collins' proposal for fifty million dollar investment in social housing, and that's a great news story for Hamilton and you know, is being widely applauded right across the country for, for, for that uh, social policy activism. So there's good things happening. So I don't want to get too down on, on the provincial government on, on this basic income pilot, but they do need to fix a couple of things. And, th- and that's, that's where we're, we're going to be encouraging them to do. Well, when, when does the reboot happen then? When does the province sit down and say, okay, maybe we didn't get off on the right foot here? Uh, maybe we need to modify a few things. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's one thing to say, yes, we realize there's a problem. Uh, part B to that is fix it. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think they're going to start fixing it as they go. So uh, according to the uh, minister, there are already 400 people uh, in Hamilton and uh, Brantford and, and Thunder Bay who've been approved for basic income, and, and checks are going to start going out on the 25th of this month. Um, so that's good. Uh, and again, for those people who have uh, gone through the process of applying for basic income and, and understand that there's been a consent process and, and they know what the benefits are and um, what some of the drawbacks are, I think it's a very good uh, place to be in for them because they will see a, an improvement in their income, not all the way up to the uh, moving out of poverty, but getting a little bit closer. Um, but still, 400 uh Participants so far out of a goal of 4,000 is still somewhat small. I think uh, I think we want to continue to encourage the government to to provide more information, to continue to work with communities, and and really uh, particularly collaborate on on some of these issues we've raised uh, over the last week or so. You were involved in some of the early sessions, uh, the, the public uh, sessions, to try to get input and people asking questions like that. Uh, do you get the sense that people even understand what this program is all about and how it works? Because uh, their reticence to get involved with it may well be that they just don't understand what the government's trying to do here or how, how it's going to impact them right now. And, and as much as I don't think anybody's happy with their circumstance, with them, if they're making, for instance, 700 bucks a month, they may think, well, that's the devil I know. Yeah, exactly. And, and that is a big concern. And, and again, it goes back to that issue of trust. And, and so that's why it's incumbent on organizations like ours at the Roundtable and other community entities to really talk to people we work with, people we communicate with, and let them know what this project is about and, and what the benefits and drawbacks are. I think even within uh, the anti-poverty community, though, there, there isn't consensus on basic income. Uh, so I'm certainly willing to give it a try. I think it's a valuable experiment. It will 
here in Hamilton improve the lives, hopefully, of, uh, of a thousand people and uh, give us some valuable insight. We have um, just found out yesterday at the media conference, we have McMaster uh, and St. Mike's College uh, deeply involved in uh, in the evaluation. Uh, Jim Dunn is going to be leading that. Uh, he's fabulous. Uh, he's done a lot of work here in the community on on the neighborhood development initiative and on and on uh, health outcomes. And uh, I I, th- I think the evaluation's in good hands with Jim and his team. But um, again, here we are, uh, you know, facing a situation where there's questions of trust and there's questions of where the pilot's going to go. So it's a three-year pilot project. What happens after the three years is up? Do we still have the same provincial government in place? Is there a new provincial government? Is there a commitment to continue it? Um, There's even the possibility that a new provincial government comes into place and decides to cancel the program outright in the middle of it. Um, That's not beyond... Uh, the pale. So, well, everything's on the table if there's a change of government. And I'm not trying to, you know, point fingers at anybody because we've seen governments do that, change policy, yep. simply say, well, that was them, this is us. Uh, so, if I'm a potential uh, applicant to this program as, as part of the test case here, I may be holding back saying, look, I'm not going to do this because, you know, next, next June, this thing may be off the table. So, why should I get involved in this thing? Yeah. There's, there's an awful lot up in the air, but there's also, I think, an awful lot of confusion. Because I've talked to people about the, this program, Tom, and they said, oh, yeah, that's, that's uh, that fair wage thing. I said, no, no, that's a different policy. <laughs> oh, it's the uh, minimum wage thing. No, no, that's different. And, and they're, they're just hearing all these terms and they can't really differentiate one from the other. Yeah, exactly. And, and at the end of the day, it is a, a fairly small. Uh, pilot. So there's 4,000 people across the province. But if you look at the numbers, there are 950,000 people, I believe, who are in receipt of provincial government social assistance now. It's another 1.8 million people who are going to work every day and not earning enough to move themselves or their families out of poverty. So it's, it's a small sample. Thankfully, you know, here in Hamilton, we have an opportunity to, to help a few people with it. Um, but as I was saying, there's, there's many people who do not, uh, you know, see the benefit of, of a basic income. And they think the government should be putting resources into other places like affordable housing, affordable child care, um, universal prescription drug coverage. And they see that really as the way to go. And, and they're not necessarily wrong either. Um, this is something uh, basic, the idea of basic income, I, I believe, is going to uh, really uh, be an area where we have disagreement um, you know, in social policy circles uh, for, for a while to come. And it may end up that 20 years from now, a generation from now, uh, basic income will be a standard policy across the board. Who knows? Um, but we need to do some experimenting to see if that, if that is actually workable. All right, so how do you bring them into the fold? You, you mentioned they, they want to shoot for about 1,000 people here, but right now we're at about 400. So Yeah, uh, and, that's, and that's between Thunder Bay and Hamilton. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so clearly you've got to bring a few more people to the table here. Yeah, yeah. And as I said, I'm personally not comfortable uh, referring anybody else to the program at this point until what, we what get. What do you need s- to see? What do you need to see? Well, I need, I need to see a commitment by the provincial government that basic income is not going to be garnished. And whether that comes through legislation, whether it comes through an order in council, through cabinet, or some other way, I. I think we just need to ensure that people are going to be protected. Right now, From, I don't understand all the rules on garnishment, but I know if you're working and have a, a certificate of garnishment against you, they can take 20% of your income. But that's written into legislation. There's nothing saying uh, that this is a separate piece of income. It's not wages. Uh, it could potentially be garnished at a much higher percentage. We don't know. Um, so there's still too many questions out there. But you're not asking them to reinvent the wheel because that legislation that prohibits that from happening for people that are drawing government checks is already in place. For it's, just, it's just not for this policy. Well, exactly. It, it would, a stroke of a pen, they can extend it and say, well, by the way, it applies to this too. I hope it's that easy. Um, and I'm encouraging the government to do that, yes. I mean, they could they could fix that this afternoon. They could fix it before <laughs> lunch today if they wanted. Well, let's do that. <laughs> and I'm sure there's a cost implication, but there's a cost implication, too, if they don't get a buy into the program. Yeah, exactly. Because this whole idea as a pilot project is to get a large enough sample so that you can make some determinations as to whether or not it's an effective program. Exactly. And, you know, again, this is this is new stuff. Uh, I'm... I'm pretty sure when the government entered into the idea of a basic income pilot, nobody actually considered the idea of garnishment. Um, 
but it, it's also been moved forward fairly quickly. Yeah, it, but they pay people. I mean, there's people on, in all of these departments and the, in the bureaucratic area there that, that are paid to look after this and say, hey, have we thought about this? Before you guys leave the room, what about this? Yeah, uh, Somebody dropped the ball here. And I'm not going to point fingers, but somebody dropped it. The government should fix it. Well, I think it was rolled out a bit quicker than we see most things rolled out. Um, and, yeah, there's a and lot there of that be, going around. There may be some reasons for that. But, you know, it's there. It's on the table now. I think we can fix it. So let's let's try to encourage that to happen. Tom Cooper, thanks as always. We'll stay in touch and see how the government responds. Appreciate the time today. Thank you, Bill. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, uh, earlier this morning, uh, to the surprise of many, I guess, uh, TransCanada announced that they are nixing the Energy East pipeline and the Eastern Mainline applications, for that matter. Uh, There had been a great deal of discussion, a great deal of debate, a great deal of consternation about these projects. But uh, the expectation was that because they kind of got a rubber stamp from the federal government that they were going to go through well, apparently not. What are the implications? I, I think they're going to be significant here. Marvin Wright has been following this story, of course, at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. He joins us to try to add some clarity to this. How are you this morning, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Did this catch you off guard? Uh, well, no, not completely. It was about four weeks ago that um, uh, TransCanada Pipelines put this project on hold in front of the National Energy Board. Um, Bill, before I get right into those details, would you mind if I just give people a quick refresher about Please pipelines? Please do. Please do, because this has been going on for a long time. Well, there are four pipeline projects people have heard about, and I just want to quickly recap where they all are. So there was something called the Northern Gateway Pipeline. This was a pipeline that was going to take liquefied natural gas from sort of the tar sands area, almost due west to a terminal sort of halfway up the B.C. coast. That did not get federal approval, and it's for all intents and purposes, it's dead. Then there's the Trans Mountain Pipeline, operated by a company called Kinder Morgan. It's basically a twinning of an existing pipeline that would take uh, oil from the tar sands south and a little west into the Seattle area. Uh, this was approved by the federal government and got approvals from the B.C. government. You'll know that the B.C. government has changed. It's now an NDP government. And this week you're watching some wonderful political gymnastics at work. <laughs> the NDP government in one courtroom is arguing that the government had all the rights to approve these things and that they had done all the consultations necessary. But in another courtroom, they've joined with opponents to the Trans Mountain Pipeline, arguing that the federal government did not do all of their work correctly. And the NDP in, in uh, British Columbia would like to see this thing dead. We're just not sure how the outcome of either of these court cases are going to work out. Number three is the uh, Keystone XL pipeline. Donald Trump famously in March approved it, said it would be great for the United States. But there's been no movement on this by TransCanada, not because of approvals, but for economic reasons. They can't get enough people to sign up for long-term distribution contracts to justify building the pipeline. So we're not sure what's going to happen there. And then finally, Energy East. This is a little confusing. It was a combination of some new pipeline. There was going to be some new pipeline built in the west and some in the east to get oil from the tar sands to New Brunswick. In between was about a 1,500-kilometer stretch of pipeline that had been dedicated for liquefied natural gas, and it was going to be upgraded to make it ready for uh, oil, that bitumen kind of oil. So I mentioned four weeks ago on that project, TransCanada went to the National Energy Board and said, let's just put a hold on this. And the reason they did that was the uh, National Energy Board changed the requirements for the approval process. In the past, in assessing the environmental impact, it was strictly of the construction. So what, what are you going to do during the construction and also the operation? What are the chances for leaks and those sorts of things? But they were limiting themselves to that. Now the National Energy Board is going to not only look at those two things, but a third thing, what is the environmental impact of what you're going to transport through the pipeline? In other words, prove to us that the oil that you're extracting isn't going to cause some sort of environmental hardship. Well, at this point, four weeks ago, um, TransCanada had spent nearly a billion dollars, that's with a B bill, a billion dollars on this, but these new requirements were going to re- were ask of them so much more than they had planned. And if you add in this economic issue that, you know, the demand wasn't the same, the price of oil is not the same, um, they said we need to rethink all of this. And so this morning they got up and they announced, you know, we've rethought it and we're not going to do it. 
I think it's highly likely that we'll see none of those four pipeline projects move to fruition. Even though there was great consternation, I'm not sure the economic reality works for any of those now. Were these guys, because of the economics and because of the market changes that have occurred in the last two or three years especially, were they looking for an out? Well, that's a good question, you know, Bill. I think that's a very good question. Uh, when these projects were sort of at their heyday, oil was trading between 100 and $150 a barrel. You could make money extracting oil in the Alberta tar sands. You were, you were, it was positive. You were generating a profit there. And it also seemed like, again, I know this doesn't seem that long ago, four or five years ago, it seemed like our thirst for oil was insatiable. But now a number of forces are turning. Uh, you'll remember with great fanfare, Britain announced that I think it's 20, you may even know this better than I do, Bill, 2024, 2025, no more cars that run on electricity, no new cars running on, excuse me, not, on gasoline, no new cars on gasoline will be sold. In England, they all have to be electrical. China's debating kind of that same uh, motion. Our states in the United States looking to move that way. And almost on a dime, our, our world seems to be trying to turn away from um, uh, oil and, and pet petrochemical products, at least in terms of as a fuel. I think we're still going to use them as a, a good to uh, make clothing or make items, and, and we'll probably still have petrochemicals in our drugs and what have you. Those all are great things there. But the biggest demand has been as a fuel, and we seem to be turning away. So they may very well have been looking for ways to say, you know, we, we don't need these pipelines, but we don't want to admit defeat and make the environmentalists feel like they've won something. So now they're, they're finding other arguments. But let's, let's talk about that, because like I say, I know that there are some who are on one end of this uh, polarized argument, and it seems to be a very polarized it argument, mm -hmm. uh, that simply say, we shouldn't even be taking the stuff out of the ground anymore. You know, it's, it's environmentally toxic, it's terrible. Uh, and and you, you may remember, of course, at the NDP policy convention last year in Edmonton, there was that element of the party that wanted to nix all, all production that was going on there. Uh, so, so that's out there, but I don't know that that was the influence here. I, I just get the sense on it, and I'm looking at some of the the comments and some of the way that people have responded to this, that this is more market driven. Added on to the fact that now that uh, that the the the, the I guess the scrutiny that's going to go on here is going to talk about well, what are the chances of something happening? In other words, you're, you're transporting oil. What if there's a leak? What's this going to do to the environment? That heretofore was not part of the assessment. Uh, I, I would think that would scare them off and figure, well, what are we going to have to do, pay a surcharge? Is, is, I mean, what are the implications yeah. of that if they find themselves wanting in that evaluation? Well, let me come at that in two ways. Okay. The, the side of the angels is the environmental argument. Yeah. This is bad for the environment. We shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't even be burning fossil fuel at all. And I think most people understand that, but the path to get from where we are today to that uh, future, this nirvana future, was not clear. I had argued, even argued on your show here, Bill, that uh, for the time being, we seem to be hooked on oil. Yes, we know we should all get off. It's like we should give up cigarette smoking or something like that, but we seem unable to do it, and there just didn't seem to be any impetus to move us. So I don't think these projects are dead because of the angels. I don't think this is you know, TransCanada waking up one day and saying, oh, my God, we might harm the environment. Let's stop doing this. As well, Bill, you talked about the sort of the fuel surcharge because something bad might happen with the pipeline. I do need to remind everybody that there's still an awful lot of oil today traveling from west to east on train cars. Remember that, that horrible tragedy in Quebec where we saw Lac that town, right, saw that town destroyed by a, a train derailment. Well, there's still millions of train cars uh, full of oil traveling that way. But they're succeeding at that. In other words, they're making them get there, and the idea was to replace those train cars with this pipeline. The nice thing with the train cars is you can always put fewer on a train. In other words, if there's 100 on the train today, I can make it 90 tomorrow and 80 the day after that. I have the flexibility to adjust with these, with these uh, uh, tanker cars just how much oil I'm transporting, whereas a pipeline, there's a sort of a justifiable amount. You can't just put one barrel through in a day. You've got to be moving roughly a million barrels or a half million barrels to make the pipeline operate efficiently. And I think some of this, you go back to that economic reality, is our demand for oil is declining uh, internationally around the world and also nationally. We are successfully moving to other kinds of uh, sources of fuel and energy, whether it be solar, whether it be wind, um, other renewables and that sort of a thing, even the use of electricity. 
Uh, I, I don't mean to bring that up, Bill, and I know how a sore point that is with most of your listeners, but one of the problems that we have in Ontario, why we've had some of these pricing problems, is we actually have far more capacity than we have demand. We're, we're consuming less electricity in 2017 than we did in the year 2000. If we decide to start moving towards electric cars, it's not going to cause your bill to go up. It'll actually maybe cause your bill to go down because we can take that infrastructure and better operate it at a better capacity utilization rate. And I think these forces were at play unless you saw some other significant change in this demand. In other words, for some reason we saw demand for oil starting to go in the other direction. Um, then maybe this pipeline would still be viable. But I, uh, the only one that might get built of the bunch of them is the Trans Mountain. That's simply because right now they, they're getting more demand for the existing pipeline than they can fill. There almost is enough demand to justify the second pipeline today. So maybe that one will go. But the other three, I think, are all now dead in the water. Well, the the one supposed to go over the mountains, the Kinder Morgan thing, I mean, that's that's clearly to supply eastern markets. And uh, there's still a demand in, in those countries for those for that, that fuel, is there not? Well, you're right. But even China, and to their credit, I think, you'll hear Donald Trump in the United States sort of sticks his head in the sand on climate change. But China, on the other hand, is taking this very seriously. There is a move afoot in China to, to put a date, again, like a 2025 or a 2030, and say, by that date, we're only going to have electric cars. We're not going to do gasoline. But for the next 10, 12 years, we're still going to need that oil. So I think that pipeline is a smaller project. It doesn't cost as much. The cost of the Energy East Pipeline bill, $1 billion so far in development charges, but it would be $16 billion to build. That's an awful lot of oil you have to move to recoup that kind of investment. Kinder Morgan, even though the terrain is much steeper, it's a much shorter pipeline and much cheaper to build because it's a twinning of an existing pipeline, uh, that one still might be economically viable. But I think the others, including including even Keystone XL, they may all be dead in the water. You mentioned something else, though, and you, you know, I talked about this a couple of months ago, uh, and, and it's it's about this propensity to move to electric cars, and, and I'm not opposed to that. And, and if you look at where we live, Marvin, I mean, if I if I want to go from Mancaster to Stony Creek and you say you have to do it in an electric car, I'm fine with that, okay? Uh, but if I want to go from here to Ottawa, uh, that's a different story. We live in a big country, and there's a lot of distance between cities. And and I don't know that the technology is there right now for us to be moving as aggressively as some of these European nations are because they simply don't drive the same distances yeah. that we do. So we have two problems with electric cars today. The one is how long uh, can you take a battery charge? How far can you drive on a battery charge? Uh, you're absolutely right. I could maybe get from... Hamilton to London, Ontario, and back on one charge. Although the last, uh, you know, the last 20 or 30 kilometers, it might be touchy uh, as to whether there's enough juice in the batteries to get me home. Maybe I'm going downhill that last little way. <laughs> Maybe it'll help me. But you're right. In Ottawa, I can't get to Ottawa on one charge. So here's the second problem. I think the first is more easily overcome because they're doing wonderful things with battery technology and allowing you to store more juice, if you will, or more electricity in the same amount of space or even less. So they've really solved that problem. This is why your smartphones are so small. We've solved a lot of that. But the bigger problem is the charging. Right now, to refill my car, I go to a gas station, and five minutes later, seven minutes later, ten minutes later, I've got the tank full, and I'm off again. Right now, to recharge your battery on a car takes the better part of seven hours. So you're on your way to Ottawa. You get to, let's say, Kingston or, or Brockville. Oops, I need a charge again. You pull in, and now I'm going to spend seven hours waiting for the batteries to charge. That's the one that society hasn't solved just yet. I have enough confidence to say that in a five, ten-year span, I think great people with great minds are working on it, and they'll figure out a way to do this. So you're absolutely right. Electric cars are not the solution today. But they are becoming more of an alternative, more and more of an alternative. I even see them now on campus with some of my colleagues uh, on campus figuring out that for their driving patterns, they can use an electric car, maybe as the second car, still have a gas-powered car for those longer-haul trips. What about commercial traffic, though? Same thing. You know, right now it doesn't seem to work for, for uh, trucks that have to travel all these long distances, you know, to get produce from California to Canada. That's a a four-day drive, and it's constant driving. We don't have that solved for them yet. But 
where once upon a time I wondered if those were hard barriers that maybe we'd never overcome. The nice folks at Tesla, other places, seem to be making the kinds of progress on these problems that makes me think it's no longer a question of if we can do this, but when we'll do this, and I think it's sooner rather than later. Now, again, that doesn't mean we give up on oil. I want to be really clear about this. It's just that we don't need new pipelines. We've got existing pipelines. You remember the Line 3 refurbishment that's going on. That's still happening mm-hmm. to get oil to go through. So we're still going to need oil for the foreseeable future. It's just that do we need net new amounts of oil through pipelines? All the tea leaves are saying that we can probably cope for the next decade or two on what our existing pipelines can deliver. All right, let's talk about the impacts. We've got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, the numbers I saw here is about 9,200 jobs, construction jobs, uh, uh, if this pipeline were to be built. And they say about 900 other jobs. But let me ask you about this impact uh, on, on the Alberta economy, because I know that they were looking at this to kind of get back up off their, their knees uh, from an economic standpoint now. Uh, they've had a pretty rough time the last two or three years because oil production has been down because, as you say, the market doesn't need it anymore. What does this do for them? Well, there's actually three provincial stories here, Bill. Let me start on the other end at New Brunswick. This was going to be net new jobs for New Brunswick. Their refineries reinforced what they're doing there. You were mentioning 900 jobs in total to operate the pipeline. 200 of those were going to be in New Brunswick, and they were going to be good-paying jobs. So the, the premier of New Brunswick today has already come out and said that he's very saddened by this. He's still hopeful that there's some way to resuscitate this and find some way to do something for them out there. Then... Right before New Brunswick, we get Quebec. Well, the, uh, the mayor of Montreal and the uh, uh, premier of Quebec were not supporters of this pipeline. They're heralding this as uh, a great day for the world, a great day for the environment. People have finally come to their senses. Now, Rachel Notley has not commented just yet, or she may be commenting even as we are speaking here. Uh, I don't think for Rachel she needed to have all the pipelines succeed. So when she didn't get the Northern Gateway Pipeline, well, that's okay. I got three others, and, and that was pretty good. She batted 75%, three out of four. But as these things have begun to bog down and as they now appear to be getting canceled, none of this is good news for Alberta. Uh, I'm sure she's going to ask a TransCanada reconsider. I wouldn't be surprised if she asks uh, Justin Trudeau to have a word with the National Energy Board and suggest that maybe these new regulations they've got or these new uh, principles that they're operating under need to be changed. Uh, I'm sure she's going to push back against this in the best way she can remembering that, of course, she doesn't have a lot of control over all this. Yeah, I, I remember that debate uh, between the Prime Minister and Mayor Coderre in Montreal, and, and Mayor Coderre was talking about environmental concerns, and uh, it was days later, of course, that he started dumping millions of gallons of raw sewage into the St. Lawrence River. Exactly. So, uh, hashtag double standard, I guess. Yes. Well, we'll see how the uh, the other leaders, I know the Prime Minister is going to make a statement about this, and Notley and others, and uh, we'll obviously follow up on that. Marvin, thanks for adding some clarity to this. appreciate the time. And, Bill, just one more quick thing. Sure. I'm also going to be curious about Donald Trump. You know, Donald Trump is not afraid about speaking his mind. As he hears about this, he may very well spin this as a good news story for Keystone XL, but if we hear renewed interest on his port part in Keystone XL, that one might still be viable. That would still be great news for Alberta, and it wouldn't affect Quebec at all because it would it would head south somewhere around Manitoba. I think it heads south in the United States there, or Saskatchewan. So we'll watch to see even how Big Donald responds to this. Yeah, more uh, more cards to be played here. Thanks as always, Marvin. Appreciate this. Bye-bye, Bill. Marvin Ryder of the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.